listening to www.infinitesmile.org. Enjoy these Zen-inspired talks given by Michael McAllister. So I don't know if you've seen the film Rashomon. Akira Kurosawa's classic, uh, made in 1950, uh, five years after the end of World War II and so forth, and it's this real uh, interesting study on truth and perspective. From the personal perspective, we see things go awry, but from the impersonal opening, of truth, we uncover all that is beautiful and good. So that's kind of the synopsis of how this goes. Just to give you a little bit of a background, there's a, a murder and rape. And the murder and rape is seen by, uh, or, or understood by several people to have absolutely different uh, uh, causes and conditions that generated the situation. So in other words, from the, uh, the, the woman who was raped, she saw things one way. The rapist slash murderer, we think, sees it another way. The husband who is killed sees it another way, right? And a person who uh, had, you know, some witnessing uh, of this event sees it another. Whose truth? is correct. From everybody's perspective, they are coming at it from their, this is, this was real. And as long as we are in the world um, affixing ourselves to that which is personal, that which is mine, as opposed to that which is yours, when there's this separate self-sense that governs our interpretation of things, we're looking at a small truth. It's your version, your personal version of truth. On the other hand, when we can come at experiences from a broader perspective that incorporates not only your small version of truth, but other people's small versions of truth, we arrive at a big truth. And this big truth really is what we're trying to uncover in a stillness practice. The stillness practice, what does it do? It tenderizes us. It, uh, I had one teacher who uh, referred to it. She, she said, it's as if you are a caterpillar and we're putting you in a cocoon and you are turning into soup. Literally, you're going through a blender. And then when stuff starts to reconfigure, and you're ready, you fly away with beautiful wings, totally transformed, yet the same, right? That truth is bigger. It incorporates more of what is by not trying to interpret or change what is. And ultimately, this impersonal truth shows up as, as a very selfless giving uh, at the end of the film that really creates this kind of uplifting, you know what, yeah, 
It is a crazy mixed up world. There is all sorts of struggle for us personally and for others personally. And as we interchange, there's all sorts of struggle, but when it comes right down to it, there's something bigger that we can plug into that inspires. And I think Kurosawa does just a fantastic job of this. It's, it, um, it's dated, uh, but I, I would recommend the viewing, the viewing of it if you haven't already seen it. So how does this relate to uh, what uh, Jack Cornfield's talking about here in chapters 7 and 8 in his book, After the Ecstasies of Liberty? Bless you. Bless you again. The... Uh, Chapter 7 really talks about this gate of the eternal present, which is more or less what I spend probably 90% of my talks on. So while I'm not going to go dig into it too deeply, I am going to just remind us that this idea of an eternal present, the idea of an eternal present, is a mental representation of what always is. The now always is. It is always the present. Always. If it is past, it's an object or objects in our mind. We build the past in our mind we record it and file it. And whenever we need to remember something, sometimes that's very useful, by the way, remembering things. My wife tells me that I, yeah, yeah, where's your wallet again, right? Um, when we remember something, it's created. It's created. It's something that we've created and then we can, we can go get, okay? But when does that memory actually happen? The memory is occurring in the now. Same thing with plans. Plans, future stuff. Usually wishes and desires are really heavily laden in this future orientation. I wish I was not here. I wish I was there. And the fact that we are here in this present moment, but we wish we were somewhere else creates this tear, this gap in our experience that generates pain. Okay? I wish I was there, but I'm here. Ah, that's stress. Literally, it's a great definition for stress. Carrying stuff with us from our past, okay? Baggage from our past, that shows up as pain. So when you're not in the now, you're in varying degrees, usually, of either stress or pain. What's the way out of stress and pain? Anesthetic. Find some way to anesthetize yourself. Buy more things. Drink more alcohol. Do more cocaine. Do more meditation. Whatever it is to keep you busy from having to face the fact that you feel perpetually pained by your past 
and stressed by your future. That's the only option that the ego has. The mind can only exist if there is past, future, and judgment of either one of those two things. There is one other place, though, that meditation endeavors to show us, and that is recognizing what's happening right now, and right now, and right now. And we suture these nows together until they actually become our center point. It's all there ever is, is now. All stress occurs in this moment. All pain occurs in this moment. It's all there ever is. So denying that generates suffering. Accepting that helps take us out of our suffering. Accepting that and practicing resting in the now opens us to chapter 8. <laughs> that, was, that was a little brief chapter 7 right there. Hope, uh, hope you got that. I'm, I'm really stepping all over a lot of great work that I think he did in that chapter. But this, this, uh, this now experience that, uh, that we are never not having, we're never not in the now, okay? But we are veiled from that. We are hidden. We hide from that now continually through our, our particular form of anesthetic, whatever it is. Every one of us has various forms of anesthetic that we use. Chapter 8 comes into what I consider to be a very tricky, tricky area. He, he titles it Beyond Satori, The Maps of Awakening. Most often, uh, people are really reluctant to talk about Satori, especially when they're you know, sitting in front of the group, because, uh, and I actually agree with this, which is why I'm probably going to break that rule tonight. Um, I think what happens with Satori is we tend to put either too much value on the awakening experience, or we put too little value on the awakening experience, when in fact, as with every bit of this practice, the correct and most helpful, most useful way of dealing with Satori is going right in the middle. In other words, Satori is the name we give to, I think the direct translation is turnaround, but I might be wrong. It's a turnaround. It's where there's a recognition of, oh, there's only now. And I am part of that. I'm actually part of everything. There's no boundary to me. This body, this mind, I'm part of this radical flow. Everything is arising within this beatific, stunningly acute awareness. Everything is happening within this awareness. Everything, therefore, is happening within me. <gasps> I'm not here. I mean, I'm here, but there's so much more. And so we have these experiences, these openings, continually. Most everyone in this room has probably had one of those shocking blasts of, oh, wow. Okay? 
Maybe it's happened during childbirth. Maybe it's happened during a, an emergency. Maybe this, this still point of mind where there was no more chatter, it was just total presence and an opening occurred to you in some really, really miraculous situation. Contextualizing it becomes really, really important. In other words, if there's no soil for that seed to, to plant, in other words, if we can't plant that seed into tilled soil, that awakening experience is just a passing freakout session. Literally. And so, uh, the, other, the other thing is to, is, is to, you know, so we put, if we put too much, too much uh, weight on the Satori or awakening experience, what we tend to do is defile it. We tend to say, oh, so then if you have a Satori, you're enlightened? No. Sorry. No. I'll say it again. No. A Satori does not mean you're enlightened. It means that you've been honored. You've been struck by grace. You've seen a glimpse of what truly is beyond the personal. The other mistake we can make is to diminish it and say that it's not that important. Well, I think in some ways this can be very helpful because then it takes people out of the attachment that they may have towards Satori. Satori becomes their goal they're, and, and they're addicted to trying to get to Satori because somehow they think that's going to help them. Okay. The flip of that is to, to say, ah, Satori doesn't matter, just sit still. If you just sit still, everything's fine. Just be, just be more compassionate. If you're more compassionate, you're, you're helping people out. And, well, okay, that's partially true. But real compassion only is delivered when it's actually selfless. Where there's no self and no other in the experience of giving. When it's giving without any type of expectation of anything in return. That's compassion. Compassion is love without any hate in it. It's love without any attachment in it. So, if we say that it really doesn't matter at all, what tends to happen is compassion is confused with just being nice. From your personal perspective, being nice to all those other people who need my help. And therein, we find ego has a, an amazing dance floor. Okay? It is doing the cha-cha. So, where I think that we can be of most use and helpfulness to each other is recognizing that in order for Satori, this, this awakening experience, that so many different traditions talk about. If, if, if we can be there for it, and when it eventually happens, we don't attach to it, we actually then have a chance of letting it get integrated into our self-system in a way that becomes automatically compassionate, 
wisdom automatically begins to flow from us. We automatically find ourselves in situations where we're no longer caught by the traps and snares of our normal life. All that pain in our past is suddenly, we can kind of let go of it. We can look at it as opposed to being caught by it. We're no longer in it. We're actually watching it play out. Same thing goes with the stress in our life. We're no longer in it. We're actually watching it play out. Because what we've done is we've practiced enough living in this present moment for that Satori actually to open us. The Satori is not enlightenment. The Satori is a pointer showing us here's the path. I sometimes I think of it like Satori is base camp. Satori is base camp. Awakening is when you've gone up and you've come down back to base camp. Now before that really depresses you guys, you know, before that you get to, you know, you start going, I'll never get there, you know, <laughs> before that happens, recognize that yes, you will. I guarantee that you will. It may be on your deathbed, but you will get there. The trick is doing this prior, dying before we die. And we do this by recognizing this present moment. We do this by recognizing the activity of mind, by studying the activity of mind, studying how mind attaches to things in our past and things in our future, how it creates stories of worry and stories of victimization. We watch it do that. That watching is literally like shining the light in a dark corner. The corner is no longer dark and nothing can hide in it anymore. And then what happens? We begin to uncover, instead of our personal versions of truth that always get us and others in trouble, we start uncovering an impersonal, radical opening of just, ah. And then we live from there. We engage the world from that place of openness, of total relaxation, without anything to cling on to or avoid. We just meet our life with a soft mind and a soft body. And the strength that comes from that soft mind and soft body cannot be put to words. So where did we land? Or where did we not land? Actually, I do, I do want to share something with you real quickly. Um, in relationship to one's awakening or one's uh, spiritual experiences and so forth. Uh, so much of this work is about creating a, a process of maturation in the way we approach our, the depths of our spirituality. And when I was, I guess I'd been meditating like seriously and practicing uh, with a teacher for about... Uh, I guess five or so years, so relatively short amount of time, when I had, uh, I, 
I won't even attempt to put it into words, but it was something that absolutely blew me right out of my skin. And uh, it came from a tremendously painful uh, day three in a seven, long, seven day long uh, meditation. It was really awful. And I just, I committed to myself, I'm not moving. I'm not moving. I'm, and this was the way it worked for me. It doesn't work this way for all people, but I immediately went in and talked to my teacher and I explained this whole thing. And he said, um, I have some advice if you care to, care to hear it. I said, yeah, yeah, please. Because, you know, I'm thinking in my head, you know, you know what, I just had it. I had a Satori, I had the enlightenment experience, and then I immediately started going, you know, I wonder how many other people here have had that. <laughs> I mean, it was immediate, immediate. It's about as immature as one's practice can get, you know? Anyway, so, so he says, he didn't know that I was thinking this, you know, I was, I, you know I'm kind of sizing him up, you know, I'm thinking, yeah, I wonder if he's had a Satori. <laughs> And he said, uh, he said, he said, well, yeah, that's, a, that's, that's something you're not going to want to attach to, which is the perfect thing to say, because it was like, what do you mean? What, what do you mean, man? I just, I just had, I mean, the, the entire earth and, and sun and stars just blew up in my head in there, and, uh, and you're telling me not to hang on to this? What are you talking about? You know what? I'm Buddha. <laughs> you know, that wasn't quite that hyperbole, but still, you get the idea. And, that, and he said, I, I thought it, exactly, yeah. He, um, he then, he said, no, I just think that if you can allow this to be something that just, it's an offering, it's, it's, a, it's a pointer. If you can look at it without attaching to the pointer, as thinking that the pointer is actually something, says, this is going to lead you into a beautiful place. Otherwise, you'll, you'll destroy the entire experience. You'll turn the experience then into a thing. And then I'll, all it will do is uh, be food for your ego. It's like, he caught me. He caught me. And it took me five years after that, with all those sashins and the practice period, all that stuff, that for, for to undo that and they hit so amazingly I mean it, it became something that happened again and again and again so it was like real it felt so real it's like the truth was there and I'm still working with it as is every other teacher and all of you guys Think of those moments that you've had that have opened you, you know? It's nothing special. It's nothing special. It changes your entire life, but there's nothing special about it. And so approaching this practice, at this level at least, what we're learning about here from this part of the reading, I think is really, really key. And I'm, I'm kind of feel embarrassed talking about this, but I also think I want to be absolutely transparent, absolutely transparent. There's nothing special about what happened to me. It doesn't make me special. It wouldn't make any of you special. The specialness comes in the total normality, in the absolute, just being an ordinary, total ordinariness. That's when the specialness happens. 
that we can see that in another. Ordinariness. Total, ordinary, nothing extra is added. No airs, nothing extra, just pure being. Reflected through us, with us, as us. You are me. I am you. We are we. Cuckoo-cachoo. Yeah? Sorry. <laughs> Oops. Did anybody have anything to say? <laughs> Blabbermouth? Honestly, I, I don't want to, I'm, I'm happy to stay for a, a couple of minutes more. Um, uh, Victor. Didn't, uh, I think I read something about Suzuki, the founder of the Zen Center, um, on his deathbed denied ever having been enlightened? Or... Yeah, he denied ever having an enlightenment experience. What, what did he mean? Oh, I think he totally, I'm just surmising, but I, I'm guessing that he had deep, opening experiences, but sharing them with his students would have, I think in his, the way that he was approaching the teaching, I could be totally wrong here, he wasn't my teacher, but my sense is that he did not want his students to attach to awakening experiences. They'd had enough acid to have, I mean, really, I mean, not all of them, but you get the idea, I mean, the, the entire community, they were all about experience, you know? An experience is just a pointer. And so, in my view, this would have been a great way to have helped his students not look at the experience as anything other than a step, a stone to step on along the path. I could be totally wrong there. What's going to motivate people then? I mean, you have to have something to motivate you when your legs are killing you and your back hurts and you're, you know, you could be out doing other things. You're right. So what, what... It's a really good question. Why are you here? You know what I mean? Why do you climb mountains? Why, do, why, why does any of us do anything that isn't totally pleasurable? There's something more. And it's something that's recognized within our hearts that we can't explain, we can't put words to. I mean, we can try. I happen to think that there's a very natural tendency for the species to reflect the very evolution and expansion that's going on in the universe. The universe is expanding. And if we're part of the universe, it seems to me that there's some type of consciousness that's expanding in us. The universe wants to evolve through you. Which is why, for some reason, you sit there even though your knees feel like they're going to explode. Something bigger explodes, though. This is not actually to get all you guys to uh, make sure that your knees hurt or that you, you know. But ratcheting the practice up a little bit so that it's not about pleasure really is a, an amazing gift to give to your practice. It's not about pleasure. It's about studying the self and how it craves pleasure and avoids pain. In that space, that awareness that's generated is beyond pleasure and pain. And when that becomes our center of gravity, guess what? That's the end of suffering. That's what the Buddha taught. Thank you.